There's nothing more beautiful than hitting that perfect golf shot and having those three seconds where it comes down with the geography, whether it's uh, with an ocean in the background uh, or palm trees or a mountain range and where you just know you, you just hit it perfect and you just enjoy them. There's a beauty there, you know. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Golf Journal Podcast. I'm Dave Giancola. You may know Thomas Friedman best as the New York Times foreign affairs columnist and author of eight books, or maybe as a three-time Pulitzer Prize winner known for his experience in the Middle East and covering global environmental issues. Well, he also happens to be an avid golfer who first took up the game as a child in Minnesota and also had a notable stint as a caddy for a famous player in the U.S. Open. It's a great story. You're not going to want to miss it. My colleague Greg Midland had the chance to visit Tom at his home in Maryland, where it's clear he loves the chance to talk about golf just as much as the topics that frame his body of work. Here's Greg Midland and Thomas Friedman. Tom, let's start with the golf questions. So your dad introduced you to the game, as, I, as I've learned. Yeah. Um, how did he do it? Did you ask him? Did he ask you? And, and did you take to it right away? So we belonged to um, a little country club uh, outside of, um, just on the edge of, it was of um, Minneapolis. I, I live in a suburb, basically, St. Louis Park. And, um, uh, and this was a local club called Brookview. And um, uh, and my dad and our family belonged. And um my first recollection was, um, I know my first golf club was a sawed off driver and the grip was a, one of those black tar, you know what I mean? Kind of, uh, tape basically. Yep. And, um, uh, and, and I don't remember if I started by catting for him, which in those days was pulling his cart, um, uh, for which I, I was paid $3 and 50 cents uh, for 18 holes and, um, or playing, but basically I, I, been playing all my life since I could, you know, basically walk and swing a club, you know, uh, with him. And um, uh, our routine in the summer was this being Minnesota, so it was summer golf. Was uh, he would come home from work um, uh, around, get home around five twenty. We'd eat quickly, and then we'd go play six, seven holes before the sun went down. That's and, great. Uh, that's what we did all summer, and I grew up playing with my dad. And um, unfortunately, my dad uh, actually died on the golf course. He had a heart attack. Yeah, oh, yes. on uh, uh, at our, at our club you know, at so, Brookview. At, 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 well, actually, right. they, the club had moved out to become Rolling Green, oh, okay. farther out west, and um, uh, he, he died on the um, uh, on this on the fifteenth hole there. Oh, yeah. were, were you with him? Or? No, I, I was. Uh, I was away. At, I was in school in Israel. Actually, I was in college. Oh, jeez. And um, so, uh, but it was fast and merciless, and um, uh, in that sense, and um, if you got to go, you know, it's not okay. a bad way to go. On a golf course, <laughs> yeah. Um, were any of your school friends golfers as well, or was this something that you really did with your dad? Yeah. Um, well, I was on the high school golf team. I was okay. captain of my high school golf team, right. but. Um, uh, and so I had friends through golf in school, but none of my close friends were golfers. I mean, of kids I sort of hung out with. Right. Um, I also played hockey in the winter. You know, uh, that was a big thing um, in Minnesota. You know, in those days you had you had ice hockey rinks where the local baseball you know field would be. So we played hockey all winter. So the two went together really well. Yeah, very well. And then, you know, this, this fascinating story of you getting to caddy for Chichi Rodriguez in the 1970 U.S. Open at Hazeltine National Golf Club. Uh, how did you get connected to that? Were you, were you, I mean, it sounds like you were caddying a little bit like with your dad, right. but, but how did you get connected with the championship and with Hazeltine? So um, I was 17 at the time. And uh, in those days, um, the USGA would not allow professional caddy at an open because they were amateurs as well. And so um, 
something that's it's so sad because it'll never happen again. But it was remarkable. Um, each club nominated four caddies, um, uh, and I got nominated from my club. And we went to Hazeltine uh, two weeks before the tournament. And Don Warren, who was the pro there, we walked the course, and they gave us each a little book uh, measured by trees and traps, you know, to the center of the green. And um, I had I had caddied there before uh, for City League, but I'd never I'd never played it. And um, uh, a week before the tournament, maybe ten days, um, and there's a picture of this on the wall still at Hazeltine. They brought out a giant silver bowl into the middle of the dining room. They assembled all the caddies. They had each player's name um, folded up in the bowl in a little piece of paper, and you stuck your hand in the bowl, and somebody pulled out Arnold Palmer. Somebody pulled out Jack Nicholas. Somebody pulled out Sam Sneed. Somebody pulled out Tony Jacklin, who won. And I pulled out Chichi Rodriguez. Incredible. And, um, and uh, was there on Sunday when he arrived. I can still see it, you know. And um, uh, we played three practice rounds. We, we, uh, we played with Sam Sneed one day and uh, Jerry Hurd before he got hit by lightning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we'd walk off things and, um, you know, do the basics. I wouldn't read putts for him, obviously, but I could basically get him the distances. And um, uh, the first two days, um, gosh, who did we play with the first two days? I, I can't remember. Not, well, Chichi was in second place after the first day. Uh, Tony Jacklin shot 71. It was incredibly windy. And that's when Dave Hill said they should plow the place up and turn into a cornfield. Um, Chichi shot 73 and was in second place. And um, and he made the cut. And um, uh, he ended up 26th, I believe. He made about $1,750. And he paid me $175 and all the balls and gloves in his bag. And I was... Um, uh, I was just the happiest kid in the world. In the last two days, we played with an 18-year-old amateur from Texas named Ben Crenshaw. Wow. In his first U.S. Open. Super cool. That's yeah. true. What a great experience. Yeah, just a great experience. Chichi was wonderful. Yeah. Uh, 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 just a great, great guy. But I've told this story, you know, about 20 years later, some family friends of ours were in Dorado Beach, you know, his home course down in Puerto Rico, and they ran into him. And they said, as family friends will do, um, Chi-Chi, do you remember who caddied for you in the U.S. Open at Hazeltine? And without missing a beat, he said, Tommy. And um, uh, and they said to him, as family friends will do, do you know that he's more famous than you are today? And Chi-Chi thought about that for a second and said, not in Puerto Rico. <laughs> <laughs> what was the experience like being inside the ropes with the crowds? And I mean, that must have been one of the biggest forums you've ever oh, yeah. been in. It was, it was it was just amazing. Um I remember once he asked me to for a yardage, and um, uh, and Chichi could do this, and I don't remember exactly, but I think I said it was 153 yards, you know, on the fifth or sixth hole at Hazeltine, and um, and when the ball was in the air, he said, "Tom, I hit that 153 yards," and so I'm holding my literally holding my breath, you know, and and he came down close to the hole, and people applauded and whatnot because they'd watch watch me walk it off, you know, from a tree, and. Um, uh, but he never got mad, never raised his um, voice. And and he was a man of the people. I remember uh, one day, somebody, one of the pros was complaining about the food in the clubhouse. And and he just really, um, you know, just 
really went after him. I mean, yeah. to me, you know, that we live this incredible privileged life and these guys are complaining about that. You know what I mean? And right. He was a man of the people. He never forgot who he was, where he came from. And, um, uh, he said, Tommy, I'm, I win this tournament. I'm going to put you through college. I hope you're a senior in college right now. Anyways, I remember all his lines. <laughs> That's wonderful. Great experience. What is it about the game from an early age and even today that, that draws you in, that compels you? Well, you know, I think that what really compels me and I've written a little bit about this is that, um, how much golf, well, and it's not an original thought, but how much golf is like life? You know, that is, um, it, it's the sport most like life um, uh, in several ways. And one is that, um, uh, you know, I think it was Gary Player who said, you know, the more I practice, the luckier I get. It's, it's, a, it's a sport where you really see the input and output of dedication and practice. Yeah, I'm sure it's true of every sport, but for me, it's just very, very clear, you know what I mean, that what what practice and diligence leads to um uh secondly it's um it's most like life because it's built on an uneven surface it's not like a tennis court or a football field so good and bad bounces are built into the game and as in golf so in life really it's all about how you react to the good and bad bounces um do you do you blame your caddy do you blame your equipment um do you rail to the gods um, uh, or do you do what, you know, Tom Watson used to famously say, if he landed in a divot, watch this. <laughs> and so, um, and there's a certain, to me, that something, the intangible thing about golf um, is this combination of physiology, a psychology, geography, and geometry. Because every shot is a puzzle. Every, every shot is, first of all, it's a, geometry puzzle how do i launch this white ball um that distance at that arc and that speed and that angle so it's you, you every start, shot starts with a geometry question um and then once you've solved that um you've got the uh the physiology question how do i twist and contort um and turn my body to launch the ball on that geographic angle. Um, and, and then you have the psychology of it. Uh, what state of mind do I need? Um, but lastly, there's the art of it. They, there's nothing more beautiful than hitting that perfect golf shot and having those three seconds where it comes down with the geography, whether it's uh, with an ocean in the background uh, or palm trees or a mountain range and where you just know you, you just hit it perfect and you just enjoy the, there's a beauty there, you know, that, um, uh, that keeps you coming back. You know, it's very intangible. Um, and there's a camaraderie that comes with golf. You know, the cliche about golf has always been that, uh, you know, four guys chasing a little white ball, four gals, you know, um, uh, what a stupid thing, you know. And um, I did an essay once, I think it was for the USGA, for that book I did on, on uh, classic shots, that it's not about the ball. It's about everything other than the ball, you know. I just made a golf date with some friends in, in, uh, in Florida. I'm going to be down there in a couple of weeks. And, um, uh, and the trash talking started just the second. You know what I mean, we made, and um, there's just something about that, that you can compete. I'm 68. You know what I mean? You can compete and talk trash and um, have all the joys of victory and defeat, you know, uh, and it never gets old. And there's nothing like 
good golf buddies, you know what I mean? And the, the special bonding that comes with that. Absolutely. And, um, and I really enjoy playing with my wife and we, we have a lot of fun. We've traveled all over the world playing together. So it's a great sport in that sense as well. Such a great family sport. Absolutely. My first assignment overseas was to Beirut. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, there we were members of the Beirut Golf and Country Club. Uh, it was 13 holes. The Shade Militia had taken five and, um, uh, and used to play there all the time. And it was a really way to stay sane. The, the course's driving range, as I rode in Beirut to Jerusalem, was perpendicular to a Palestinian shooting range. So we would hit that way and they would shoot that way. And, um, but uh, it was great fun and a great re- release. And, and again, for me, the best part about golf sort of traveling and overseas is uh, the people I've met. Um, I mean, I've played in so many different countries where I traveled and worked and when I had time and um, just never had a bad day. Just never had a bad day. Never met anyone. Never had a, a partner that, you know, was unpleasant. Um, and uh, it's... Um, uh, and so it was a great way to meet people and be outside and, and see different cultures, you know, stop for noodles after nine holes in Singapore or, you know, um, or, or in Japan or, or, or in Dubai um, or in Cameroon or, you know, I play in some crazy places um, in Moscow, uh, Tehran, um, uh, Cuba, uh, you know, and where, where, where there's a golf course, I'll find it. And um, uh, I'll take advantage. That's terrific. What attributes of your parents do you feel had the biggest impact on who you've become as a as a as a, as a man? Um, I, I wrote a little bit about this when my mom died. You know, um, uh, well, the most important thing about growing up, where and when I grew up, is that um, I did grow up in a very diverse, religiously and sort of immigration-wise environment. It wasn't diverse, black, white. Where I grew up, it was a virtually entirely white suburb, but Protestant, Christian, Catholic, you know, Jewish. And um, I grew up with a really diverse group of people in that sense and um, and really grew up with a real affection for pluralism. I grew up in a time and place where politics worked. And that's been a big liability for me as a journalist because my column could really be called Always Looking for Minnesota. So I, have a, I grew up with a optimism bias. You can do anything. You can go anywhere. You can rise as high as your ambition or, um, uh, you know, or energy will take you and something certainly my parents bred into me. But um, I grew up with an optimism bias um, because I grew up at a time and place where politics worked. My mom was a radical liberal and she voted for 12 straight elections for Bill Frenzel, who was our congressman, who was a Republican and actually used to run for Congress with just a big billboard that simply said Frenzel for Congress and didn't even say what party he was from. <laughs> so it was that kind of a place. Yeah. And, um, and so that's what, you know, I think I grew up with a sense that the sky's the limit, you know, as, as hard as you work and, and with an optimism bias, you know, my, uh, uh, my column runs in um, the Israeli newspaper Haaretz in Hebrew, my New York times column, really nice thing for me. And um, the, uh, I was once, I wrote about this uh, uh, in Israel and having dinner with the editor of Haaretz. And I said to him, it's so great, I love the fact you run my column, you know, in, in Hebrew. Um, but why do you run my column? And he said, Tom, you're the only optimist we have. And there was an Israeli gen- general at the dinner and he said, Tom, I know why you're an optimist. I said, why? He said, it's because you're short. <laughs> I said, short? I'm not that short. I'm 5'7". Uh, he said, you can only see that part of the glass that's half full. And... Um, uh, I would say that that's really true. I, I, um, 
I have an optimism bias, but um, I also had a very unusual experience. I lived inside a civil war in Beirut for four and a half years. And um, uh, my apartment was blown up. My driver's wife and two daughters were killed in my apartment, had to help dig them out. I covered the U.S. Embassy bombing, the Marine bombing, the Sovereign Shatila massacre, the Hama massacre. Um, and Beirut um, introduced me to the other side of Minnesota, of life, you know, that life is not growing up in Minnesota when I grew up uh, there. And um, so uh, there's a certain tension in my journalism between this sort of optimism, you know, can't we all get along, pluralism bent, um, with a, um, a certain respect for order, that uh, a certain appreciation that actually things can completely disintegrate in a society. I actually saw that. And so um, uh, I, I saw a, a country collapse into civil war and, um, and every institution fall apart. And so that very much colors my journalism right now, which is really a tension between these two things. Like, can't we all get along? And um, uh, folks, if you, if you kick this thing around enough and long enough, you can break it. And if you break it, you can lose it. And once it's gone, it won't come back. What was, uh, what was a Friedman family dinner table like in the 1960s during your childhood <laughs> with your, your siblings and your parents? and everybody? Yeah, I have two older sisters. Yeah. Um, you know, I would just say very, you know, suburban Minneapolis. I always had an interest in international affairs. And I don't know where that came from. Um, but I think partly had to do with the fact, so my parents were voracious um, newspaper and uh, magazine readers. So we got Time Magazine. We got the morning paper and the evening paper. And I used to read columnists. Um, uh, I mean, when I was in high school, I can still see myself bent over in the living room with the, with the Star Tribune opened and reading Peter Lissagor and Tony Lewis, who later became a colleague of mine. Um, and so I always had this interest in public affairs. And then in high school, when my parents took me to Israel, I got an interest in the Middle East. And then I also um, had a, I had that teacher, right. the teacher who changes your life, uh, Hattie Steinberg, who taught me journalism in room 313 at St. Louis Park High School in 10th grade. And her course is still the only journalism class I've ever taken. Um, not because I was that good, because she was that good. I really didn't need anything after her. And so um, a, a lot of who I am got formed, you know, in high school, interest in golf, interest in international relations, interest in the Middle East, and wanting to be a writer, um, wanting to be a journalist. So, But it says something about you. Like, my, uh, you know, what, what was it about you that was able to absorb and take advantage of all those opportunities at a time when probably some of your peers were more interested in, you know, going to parties? And right. Like doing, I mean, and, yeah. and not saying that you didn't do, you know, you didn't have them but like you there was something about you that said this you know be, between Hattie Steinberg right. and your parents and the trip to, the right. trip to you know you, yeah. you said wow this is I'm going to absorb yeah. this what is there yeah. something you can point um, to I, I really don't know what it was I just um I've thought about a little because I'm writing a book now about sort of how to write a column and yeah. what what it means to be a columnist and um uh I had a and this is just something you're born with. I, I had an explorer gene that I really enjoyed going to foreign places and then coming back home and telling people about it. Like I went to Egypt um, in 19, um, uh, well, it would have been the 1974. 
um, no, excuse me, it was 1972. Um, I went to Egypt before the 73 war, when Egypt didn't even have diplomatic relations with the United States because my sister's former boyfriend was at the American University in Cairo. And so that was really behind enemy lines in a way, you know. And, um, uh, and I remember, you know, coming back and, you know, telling people about it. One of the things I, in the book I'm writing, I explain how I learn as a journalist because we all learn differently. And, and this is all ex post facto. I didn't start out saying, this is how I will learn. Um, this is me 40 years later looking back and saying, hey, you actually developed a way of learning. So how did you learn? And because um, people will ask me about it. And, and I explained that. So I learned by going to the edge. The chapter is called Postcards from the Edge. Mm -hmm. I went to the edge of three different stories because all the best learning happens at the edge. Mm -hmm. And also at the edge, you get to name things. Hey, it feels like the world is flat out here. Okay, so um, I went to the edge, first of all, of human behavior. I lived inside a civil war for four and a half years. Mm -hmm. And I got to see how molecules behave at really high temperatures. Uh, you get to see things about human beings, how, what they're capable of for ill and for good, for kindness and generosity under extreme conditions. And, but that also taught me to be an anthropologist because there was no data in Beirut. The only data was talking to another human being. And so I developed an ear for, for the, the quirky, ironic things that people say. You know, one of the chapters in Beirut to Jerusalem is called, Would You Like to Eat Now or Wait for the Ceasefire? <laughs> well, there's 100 journalists who could hear that. And they might not all pick up on it. But, like, I hear that and I immediately write it down. Would you like to eat now or wait for the ceasefire? You know. Um, and so, secondly, I went to the edge of technology. So I developed a means of learning where I go to companies. Um, one of them was Infosys in Bangalore, cutting-edge companies, Walmart, Amazon, AT&T, Infosys. And I say to their CEOs, uh, not interested in your quarterly profits, um, not interested in your stock price, not interested in who your successor is, just want to spend time in your research department and your human resources office. I want to know what's happening at the tip of your spear because if you want to know what the future is going to be like, hang around with the people who are inventing it. And I want to know how you're training your people for the tip you're inventing. Because I think my intuition is that's coming to a neighborhood near me. So that's what brought me to Bangalore, India in 2004 mm -hmm. um, uh, and to Infosys. And um, they were at the tip of the outsourcing industry and how they were training their people for it. And that's how I wrote The World is Flat. And um, uh, to say one immodest thing, um, that book was written three years before the iPhone. It was written three years before Facebook, okay? So it was, and it was only not my genius, because I was hanging around with the people who were inventing that future. So I wrote that before any economist wrote it, you know, because that was where I was learning, you know. Um, and then lastly, I went to the edge of the environment. So for the last 30 years, I've traveled the world with Conservation International and with um, uh, the U.S. Navy. Took me on their Arctic ice exercise in a submarine beneath the Arctic. And, um, and I've been with CI forever from the Amazon to, you know, to Indonesian rainforest. And um, I came to appreciate and understand, eventually write a book about natural systems, hot, flat, and crowded, and, and, um, and how they work. And then I, I came to realize that this globalization thing I was writing about was such a complex system that there's only one other thing that mirrored it in its complexity, and that's natural systems. So if you want to understand how this system works, what stabilizes and destabilizes it, nature can be an incredible model and mentor. 
And so I began then to take all three of these perspectives and arbitrage them. So into um, one way of looking at the world, where you're always arbitraging the natural world, technology, and human behavior. I mean, it's, you kind of alluded to it just then, but what is your assessment of where we are now as a planet? Coming back, you were at the, the Glasgow Climate Summit. What, what is your current assessment of where we are? The most scary thing about where we are right now is that we're already above 1.1 degrees Celsius rise since 1880, say since the Industrial Revolution got cranking, okay? Um, the Paris Climate Agreement says we need to stay below 2 and ideally be below 1.5. But what's terrifying is at 1.1, we're already seeing real signs of stress in the Atlantic um, basically current system that, that basically takes the um, uh, water, warm waters of the Gulf um, up the East Coast um, uh, around Antarctica and Greenland, basically, and then back down. And it's a, it's a, it's a critical, it's called the AMOC, Atlantic um, uh, Circulation System that takes warm water, cools it, um, sends it back down to be heated up. And that drives the monsoon, drives ocean currents. And um, there are signs that it's breaking down. Well, if that breaks down, the monsoons don't rain where you think they're going to rain. The, that affects the uh, Amazon. Um, and the Amazon you know, creates a lot of its own weather just by the moisture there. Um, the Amazon could flip into a savanna. Um, and suddenly this giant carbon sink storehouse could actually be a source of carbon emissions. Um, if the rainforest turns into a savanna, the Siberian tundra could melt and release all the carbon it's storing. So we're at a really, if you listen to earth system scientists, at least my teachers, um, they're seeing some stuff right now. The tipping points are tipping way before we thought they would tip. And of course, um, where that will show up in terms of golf is two places. One is sea level rise, um, and the other for all links courses, and the other is extreme weather events, but not extreme weather events. We're starting to see super extremes, um, super droughts. Look at the stress that California golf courses have gone through from both wildfires and drought, you know. Um, and so uh, we're at a very concerning moment right now to anyone paying attention to the science um, where way before we thought we were at the boundary line of what we needed to do, 1.5 degree rise Celsius in average temperature since the Industrial Revolution at 1.1. By the way, that is more. We've seen a, a, a 1.1 degree rise in average temperature since the Industrial Revolution, since the last ice age, average temperature has never gone more than one degree. So we're beyond where, we were, where we've been since the last ice age. You're talking about like tens of thousands yeah. of years ago. And that all happened since 1880. And so um, uh, uh, this is extremely worrying and it's going to stress out every natural environment. Uh, including golf courses. And so I think we're going to be, you know, seeing a lot of places go from greens to browns and um, and, and really need to think um, water, uh, how they how they store water, how they retain water, um, how they desalinate water, um, and different grasses. Um, I know the USGA is on top of this, but it's, 
uh, it's very concerning. And that was what came out of Glasgow. Um, what are the factors holding back the U.S. And, and other Western countries as well from meaningful progress and of thinking of solutions to these as being uh, being pro-business and being right. good for the economy? Because it seems like there's this there's this right. tug and pull between, well, if you do that, then it's going to decimate the economy. But what, I mean, in your observations, how, how valid is that? And what are, what are some of the things holding back people from taking, uh, going down that road? Well, you know, my view has always been um, that if you prepare for climate change and it doesn't come as quickly or as severely as we anticipated, it's like training for the China Olympics right now. And then the Olympics get canceled for COVID. What are you? You're fitter? stronger, healthier in every single way. That's the worst thing that happens. If you prepare for climate change, you have a more efficient economy, a less polluting economy, and a more um, a productive economy. Uh, that's the worst thing that happens. If you don't prepare for climate change and it is as severe or worse than some experts fear, we're a bad biological experiment. So just on a risk-adjusted basis, what should you be doing, you know? Um, and at the same time, what I often tell people is that if I'm speaking to a skeptical audience, you don't believe in climate change, I do. Let's keep that aside. That's between you and your beach house, okay? Um, uh, let's just talk about population, okay? There, there are um, about 7.2 billion people on the planet right now. Um, by 2030, there's going to be by the UN population projections, there's gonna be 8 billion people here. It's almost another billion people riding on the same roads you drove down here, Greg, you know, trying to go to the same schools, trying to eat the same Big Macs and drive the same cars. Now, if we had another billion people on the planet, whether there's climate change or not, um, if we don't find more efficient ways to um, uh, produce food and work and transport and heat and cooling for those people, we're going to burn up, choke up, heat up and smoke up the planet faster than even Al Gore predicts. That's just on numbers. That's one times impact, you know, uh, 800 million or a billion times. So what does that say? It says that unless we want to be a bad biological experiment again, um, clean energy, clean power, energy efficiency, efficient transportation, heating and cooling have to be the next great global industry. That's no matter what happens, okay? Well, who thinks America can be the biggest economic power in the world and not lead the next great global industry? Please, please raise your hand. You know, can you expand on that a little bit just to talk a little bit about what, what are the areas where there's hope and where are the areas that are concerned? Well, you know, the hope is in the, uh, both the technology and the consciousness. Uh, so I think the debate is largely over, but the question is about speed and urgency, you know, and, um, uh, you know, are we going to rise to this challenge? Because, excuse me, you know, people forget Mother Nature is just chemistry, biology and physics. That's what we should have learned from the pandemic. She's just chemistry, biology, and physics. You can't talk her up. You can't talk her down. You can't say Mother Nature. We're having a, we've had this pandemic long enough. Could you move on, please? She's going to do whatever chemistry, biology, and physics dictate, whether it's a pathogen or whether it's climate change. And um, my teacher and friend, Rob Watson, taught me this. You know, she always bats last. And she always bats a thousand. <laughs> do not mess with Mother Nature. How do you handle... 
How do you handle negative columns of or negative comments of your columns and your work? I mean, obviously, there's a much greater forum for that today. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, in, in the days when you were right. uh, learning the trade, you know, papers could only print so many letters to the right. editor. Now, you right. know, but but how do you? How, and first of all, do you look at them and, and yeah. do you absorb them? And how do you handle them? So very simply. Um, so first of all, I had Twitter before there was Twitter. I was the New York Times columnist covering the most neuralgic issue for the New York Times, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So I am I got used a long time ago to people writing about me and trashing me. Um, uh, in, in those days, there were fewer places, but I, I got a lot of it because um, my work is not un- controversial. You know, I mean, it's um, I don't take and very proud of it, but um, it didn't always uh, correspond with other people's take. So I had that much earlier. I had Twitter before there was Twitter, basically. Um, uh, how I handle it today is very simple. Uh, so I have actually never looked at Twitter. I do not know what Twitter looks like. I have, though, uh, close to a million Twitter followers. And that's because I use Twitter as a broadcast platform. But my assistant, Gwen, actually runs it. I do not know the password even. I So um, I tweet out my column uh, when it comes out. And I've probably written 10 tweets in 20 years, if you send me something, Greg, and say, Tom, would you tweet this? I will tweet it. But I am just not interested in what anonymous people um, uh, think about my work in um, in 240 characters or, or whatever it is. Um, I do read the, col- the comments on my column uh, because I find they're much more serious as a, as a whole. Um, they're, the longer some of them people write, um, they have a left bias because it's the New York Times online. But you can pretty well get a sense of what people, what a, a diverse audience thinks you know, about your column. Um, but most of all, my wife is my editor. And um, uh, when my wife tells me a column doesn't work, I start over. And when my wife says that was a really good column, I don't care what anybody else says because she is such a tough taskmaster and would never let me embarrass myself. So I go through life like this, which is to say, I want feedback. I want serious feedback and I want positive feedback. We all do. But um, I didn't go into this business to be looking over my shoulder. So I've actually, I don't have a Facebook page. I have one defensively mm-hmm. that might get my system, system run. So no one, a lot of people are faking it. Right. You know? um, but uh, I'm kind of, um, I, I, I trust the people I trust and I just move on. And so this is a true fact. I have never responded to a critic, not of a book review, not of a column, not of anything in 40 years. And it's not because I don't care. It's that I actually can't talk you into, if you read my column last week, Greg, then you don't think it's very good. I can't, I actually can't talk you into why it's good. You know what I mean? And so um, my whole philosophy of life is just keep marching forward. Catch me if you can. You've managed to stay, you know, obviously relevant and current for, for 40 years. Um, is there anything you've really wanted to do that you haven't actually done? And how do you envision your career taking uh, future steps? You know, I honestly, I wouldn't change a day. You know, um, I've been blessed. Um, I got to cover some amazing stories for the most amazing newspaper and uh, who gave me time to write books um, for an amazing publisher and um, uh, just made 
incredible friends, you know, along the way. Um, uh, there are many people I identify in my books and columns as my teacher and friend because I learned from my friends. And, um, uh, you know, um, I've, I've just had the most fun you can have legally that I know of. And um, illegally, maybe in some ways, but I don't know. I, I just... Um, uh, I've, I've really been, um, been blessed and, um, you know, I don't want to go into politics, never had an itch for government. Um, uh, I really, and this to me is the, um, most important lessons that I learned as a columnist. There really two is one is you have to like people. Um, because when you like people, they like you back. And by that, I mean, they actually reveal themselves, the crazy things they say, do aspire to fear, love, hate. Um, and I really like people and I interview people wherever I go. Um, and I did that a little with you when you sat down, I would have done more, but, uh, if I'm standing in line at Starbucks and someone says, Hey, I'm a fan. I say, Oh, Hey, where are you from? What do you do? And you'd be amazed at how many people end up in columns and books that way. So I'm always on, you know, in that sense. Um, but the second thing I learned and, uh, is, is, and this to me is the most important lesson of life is, is, uh, and this may be what the book is called is what you say when you listen. Um, because um, two things happen when you listen. One is what you, you learn when you listen. Um, and all the things I got wrong, and I got plenty of things wrong, were because I was talking when I should have been listening. Uh, but much more important is what you say when you listen. So listening is a sign of respect. And it's amazing what people will let you say to them if they think you respect them. And if you don't think you respect them, you can't tell them the sun is shining right now. Well, there you have it, folks, a fascinating conversation with a fascinating human being. We want to thank Tom for welcoming the USGA into his home and for joining us on the Golf Journal podcast. On behalf of our guest, Thomas Friedman, and my co-host, Greg Midland, I'm Dave Giancola, and we'll talk to you next time.